Welcome to the One God Report podcast. This episode is called Exegesis of John 1-1, Part 2. What or who is the word of John 1-1 with Rivers of Eden? In the previous podcast, Rivers and I reviewed reasons for understanding the first phrase of John's gospel, in the beginning, as a reference to the new beginning that God is bringing about through Jesus the Messiah. In this podcast, we consider how to best understand what or who John meant by the word word in the phrase, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word for word is logos. We will often refer to the word using the Greek term logos. As with the phrase in the beginning, the meaning of logos in John's prologue is best understood and defined first and foremost by other uses of the same word in John's Gospel. We shouldn't ignore or dismiss how the author himself uses Logos and go looking for its meaning in other extra-biblical literature. Logos, in its various forms, occurs nearly 40 times in the Gospel of John. And in the vast majority of occurrences, Logos means a word, a verbal expression, a statement, a teaching, a saying, something spoken. I suggest that Jesus is the Logos in John's prologue because through and in Jesus, God is speaking. Jesus said more than once, The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 1.18 states that no one has seen God, but the unique Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has explained him. Likewise, as a parallel, the author of Hebrews says that in these last days God has spoken by a son. And the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 13, says the name by which Jesus is called is the Word of God. Now, Rivers places a bit of a different emphasis on how Jesus is the Logos, stating that in the Gospel of John, Logos is primarily the verbal utterance or teaching of Jesus, that is, things that Jesus said during his public ministry, and that it is difficult to separate the verbal utterance from the speaker, Jesus. We also address the question, if Jesus is the Logos of John's prologue, why isn't he called the Logos again in John's Gospel outside of the prologue? Further, we analyze how both Deity of Christ theologians and One God believers who see John's prologue as commentary on the Genesis creation, have gone outside of the Gospel of John to define what John's Logos means. Rivers outlines the steps that one God-believers, so-called biblical Unitarians, have taken in an attempt to make Logos of John's Gospel synonymous with personified wisdom of Proverbs 8 and other extra-biblical literature. It's a fairly twisted path, that biblical Unitarians of this persuasion have had to take. The steps are something like this. They've accepted the assumption that in the beginning of John 1.1 is describing directly the Genesis creation. Next, rejecting the Trinitarian assumption that Logos is the pre-human member of the Trinitarian Godhead. Logos is taken to be an abstract plan or purpose or intention or the wisdom of God which existed prior to creation. Next, the in the beginning of John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1 are compared to Proverbs 8, 
where the abstract wisdom is personified as existing before and involved in creation. But unfortunately, wisdom, nor prudence, which is also personified in Proverbs 8, wisdom is not mentioned at all in the Gospel of John. So the next step is, wisdom has to be made synonymous with logos by appealing to other external, non-biblical wisdom literature. If wisdom can be made synonymous with logos, then the reasoning goes, the personification of the abstract wisdom of Proverbs 8 can control the definition of logos in John 1, making logos of John 1 an abstraction that is personified like wisdom is personified in Proverbs 8. Now Rivers gives a couple of examples how if one wants to use that kind of methodology but stay within the Gospel of John, Jesus can be shown to be the logos. But again, this is not the best method to determine the meaning of logos in John 1. There is no logos in the Genesis creation account. Neither is wisdom mentioned at all in John's Gospel. It's much preferable to look at the language in the prologue and in the entire Gospel of John and allow the author himself to define a term like logos. Now I see the same kind of thing happening with the DFD of Christ interpretations of John 1.1, but from a different direction. Deity of Christ interpretations of Logos in John 1 adapted into Christianity non-biblical Greek philosophical ideas of what or who Logos was. To some Greek philosophers, the Logos was some kind of a secondary or intermediary divine being. Second century Gentile church fathers, influenced heavily by Greek philosophy, jumped on these Hellenistic concepts of Logos and imposed these ideas onto their interpretation of John 1, stating that the Logos was a pre-existent divine figure who then took on flesh as Jesus. But for these second century church fathers, the Logos was a secondary, lesser God, subordinate to the supreme God. Ideas of co-eternality and co-equality among members of the Godhead came later. For a more detailed description of the process of how second-century Gentile so-called church fathers adopted Greek ideas about the Logos into Christianity, see the One God Report podcast number 10 called Evolution of the Trinity, interview with Dr. Dale Tuggy, part 1. I also point out that the adaptions of the Greek Logos ideas into Christianity in the centuries following Jesus did not originate in Jerusalem. The prophets say, For out of Zion shall go the teaching and the word of the Lord Yahweh from Jerusalem. Unquote. Now rather, these church fathers' ideas about the Logos originated and developed in places like Athens, Greece, Alexandria, Egypt, Cappadocia, and Constantinople in modern Turkey. And I also point out that contrary to the claims that John's definition of Logos can be informed by Hellenized conceptions of the word, John may be using Logos as a polemic, that is, as a direct attack or contrast to the Greek ideas. You might be saying something like, In this description of the human Jesus, I will tell you how the Father only God has communicated with humankind. Now this is our first experimentation with Zoom dialogue recording, so please excuse the lower quality audio. 
We hope to upgrade the audio recording for future episodes. Now let's join the conversation as to the meaning of Logos in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Logos. So let's talk a little bit more ben, about the word. In the beginning was the word. One thing I would point out at the outset is that, again, focusing on the immediate context and this anonymous writer's own usage, because that's ultimately more important than anything we could speculate about in terms of a background influence that, again, we can't corroborate. So if we look at the term logos, it's used several dozen times throughout the fourth gospel. In every case, the basic meaning is, is its basic definition, which is a verbal expression, something that is spoken. It's not a thought. It's not a plan. Somebody might speak what they're thinking, and somebody might speak about a plan that they have, but in Greek, that's not what logos refers to. Logos refers to the verbal expression itself, something that is spoken, even if it's written down later. Let me just point out a quick example of this. If we go to the next chapter, the writer makes a comment. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the writer says in John 2.21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, later on, the writer says in John 2.22, his disciple remembered that Jesus said this, and they believed the scripture, which is the written prophecy, and the Logos, which Jesus had spoken. Now, the reason that I point that out here is because it shows that the writer did see a distinction, and this occurs a couple of other times throughout the book between what is in already written and the Logos that is attributed to Jesus himself. And in fact, of those several dozen occurrences of Logos throughout the fourth gospel, most of them, there's only a handful that don't refer to something that Jesus was speaking to the people during his public ministry. There's only one or two times, for example, in John 12, when Logos is used to refer to what Isaiah said about Jesus, again, associating Logos with what the prophet spoke, but of course had been written down in scripture by that time. And there's a couple of references in John 19 to where Logos is used to refer to a verbal report that Pilate received about things that were happening with Jesus and about uh, what they were accusing him of. So when we look at how the writer actually uses Logos, the writer himself, he's not using it to refer to the wisdom concept in wisdom literature. He's not using it to refer to, typically to refer to Old Testament prophecies that were being fulfilled or that were spoken by others in the in previous ages. He's using it 90% of the time to refer to what the disciples and the people were hearing verbally uttered by Jesus himself when he was among them during his public ministry. And so I think it's more likely that in the prologue, which introduces these concepts like beginning and light and darkness that are elaborated throughout the rest of the book, I think it's more likely that that's where we should start in terms of defining what logos means, a verbal expression, and with whom that Logos is associated, even when we read about it in John 1.1 or John 1.14. So I would just make the point that I think it's more likely that the writer is going to be consistent with how he's using that 
simple term, logos, throughout mm-hmm. the rest of the book, even in the two or three occurrences in the prologue itself. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where we should start in terms of defining it. Yeah, I agree 100%. And another thing I would say is that I think it's important to remember, like Jesus said many times, and I'll read one example. In John 14, 24, Jesus says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. That's the plural for the word logos. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus will consistently testify that his words are actually the words of God. God is speaking through Jesus. Yes, and I just want to add there, because I think this is a critical point that gets debated a lot. We have to keep in mind that it doesn't matter if the origin of the Logos in John 14, 24 is God the Father, because the one speaking it is the Son, okay? And it's not a Logos until it's verbally expressed by the human being, the Son. And that's a critical point, because you can't split hairs between the lexical definition of the word logos as a verbal expression which is apart from a speaker you know when you're defining it in a dictionary or in a lexicon it's a thing right but because of the fact that the logos refers to a verbal utterance a verbal utterance can't happen without the speaker as the one who originates it so it's a very fine line between insisting that logos is a thing and that it is and that it is not involved with a person. And I think what I would emphasize with what we see in the usage by the writer of the fourth gospel himself is that this logos is originating from one particular person. And even though he attributes the message to God, he is the one speaking and that's primarily what the logos refers to that verbal expression. And that's why when we go into the prologue and we read, in the beginning was the Word, and then we go to John 1.14 and we hear the Word became flesh, we shouldn't be splitting hairs between what the Word is and who is expressing it. Okay, and of course if we go to 1 John 1.1 and 2 that you alluded to, assuming that it's referring to the same thing and using the same language in a similar way, we see there that what was heard is also what was seen and what was touched with the hands, okay, and what was manifested, another word for sight. So we see this association with the message with a person, with something that is experienced with other senses, and I think that's a critical thing to Mm -hmm. to look at here. Now here's one thing I want to throw out because one of the things I've seen some biblical Unitarians, and of course we discussed earlier in Trinitarian commentaries that's happening, is there's this tendency to try to use information from sources outside of the fourth gospel, like wisdom literature and Proverbs and other places, to try to make this term logos synonymous with the Greek word for wisdom. Of course, the problem that people have that are taking this approach is that there is no word for wisdom used in the fourth gospel or the John books. Okay, mm-hmm. but let let me just kind of take this angle on it, and I want to also address another objection that comes up. Some people will say, well, Jesus is never called the Word by anyone in the fourth gospel. If the writer really wanted to identify the person as the Word, then, you know, somebody after the prologue would have 
referred to Jesus as the Word. That would have been a name used for him because he does call himself the light and he does call himself the life, okay? But let me put these two arguments together and show you where there's a problem. If you're going to go to external literature outside of the fourth gospel and you're going to quote passages that use logos and wisdom together, seemingly in, in Hebrew parallelism, let's look at the fourth gospel. There is no evidence that the writer of the fourth gospel paralleled the two terms. But let's say we look at John chapter 17. Here we have Jesus saying to the Father, thy word, Logos, is truth. Okay? Hmm. So there we have an equation of Logos and truth by Jesus himself. Now, we go to John 14, 6, and what does Jesus say about himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the truth. Well, if we use that argument that these uh, folks are using from external literature to say that Logos and wisdom should be viewed synonymously, then why wouldn't we take John 17, 12, where Jesus uses Logos and truth synonymously, and then in uh, a couple chapters later, the writer of the fourth gospel has himself calling himself the truth. So if the truth and Logos are synonymous in the fourth gospel, then why wouldn't Jesus be the Logos? Here's another example in John chapter uh, 10. Let's look at this real quick. John chapter 10, verse uh, 35 and 36. Okay, Jesus says in John 10, 34, he answered the Jews and said, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, I think sometimes when people look at this passage, they overlook something. They focus right away on the part that says, I said you are gods, which is referring to the Jewish leaders in Psalm 82.6. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is talking to Jewish leaders in this context. But listen to what Jesus says here. If he called them gods... Okay, he's not referring to himself in that phrase. He's referring to uh, those in Psalm 82. To whom the word of God came. Okay, so one group is these Jewish leaders, these Jewish rulers in the Old Testament. The word of God comes to them in some way. Okay, the Logos of God. Now he says in the next verse, do you say of him, referring to himself, a person, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. Do you see the connection here in John 10.35 and 10.36? In what way is the word of God coming to the Jews of the apostolic era? The word of God comes to them, those leaders, during the time of Jesus, like it came to those who were called gods in the context of Psalm 82. So here's another example of where Jesus is citing something from the Old Testament and putting himself in the place of the one who is the word of God coming to the people at that time. Yeah, now, the very... reason I'm pointing this out is that there's a possibility here. And again, it's, you know, it's, it, it's somewhat indirect. But there's a possibility here that he is associating himself with the word of God in this context because he is the one sent into the world 
on behalf of God to communicate to the Jewish leaders of his day in the same way that it was done in the past when God rebuked the Jewish leaders and judged in their midst by sending prophets and angels to judge them. Mm-hmm. So yep. just a couple things I wanted to point out where uh, um, we can go into the fourth gospel and use the language there to associate the word with Jesus directly, you know, without having to go into other Jewish sources or external literature and then try to make a connection between word and wisdom where we don't even have that connection or any use of wisdom at all in the context of the fourth gospel itself. So I think this is a better connection to make. And that helps us to substantiate our thought that John 1.1 and John 1.14 are referring to the human Jesus himself in the same historical context. I agree. The Greek of uh, John 10.35 is very interesting there. I would add a couple other things about why isn't the word used as a title for Jesus in the rest of the gospel. First of all, let's remember that he is called the word of God in what is considered to be other Johannine literature, Revelation 19.13. Jesus is clad in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So he is called it. It's true, it's not in the book of John, but Jesus is also called the Lamb of God in the Mm -hmm. book of John. Two times in the first chapter. He's never called the Lamb of God again in the Gospel of John. Another thing is that once we know or once the word is identified in such a grand fashion in John chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, with Jesus the Messiah, there's no need to keep coming back. We understand that Jesus is the word through whom the Father speaks. And yes, Jesus is speaking those words as we read the entire gospel. Because hit the prologue, that's what we lead up to. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known or explained him. So the word is identified right there. And John doesn't necessarily need to keep coming back and remind us over and over again. Although, in, as just you've explained, there are other places where we can see Jesus speaks the word of God throughout the Gospel of John. Right. And I would add, too, with your reference to John 1.18, I think that's a really good point. Because why does the writer in John 1.18 say no one has seen God at any time, but the one who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him? Perhaps the reason that he is using this apposition between seeing and hearing is because he's identifying the message in the beginning with this person, the only begotten, who is verbally expressing what is to be known about the Father. So in other words, since the Father can't be seen himself, there's a person speaking the word of God who is a visible and tangible person that dwelt among the disciples. So that may be why he brings up no one has seen God at this point in the prologue, because in order to draw our attention to the fact that there is a word that explains him. And and that word is expressed by this one who is the only begotten. And being in the bosom of the Father means that he has access to things that the Father says that no one else can hear. Mm -hmm. 
and it's interesting. Yeah. And we'll get to that later on. I don't want to get stuck on that. But one other point too, I'm glad you brought up the, the lamb of God in John 1, 29 and 36. That's another important point because if someone is going to insist that Jesus wasn't called the word by anyone else in the fourth gospel, okay, during his public ministry, well, if John the baptizer can call Jesus the Lamb of God and be the only person who refers to him that way uh, in the fourth gospel, then if we understand that the prologue is the writer of the fourth gospel himself referring to Jesus as the Word, then there's no reason that he would have to have anyone repeating that later in the gospel either. So again, it's important that we're bringing these things out because it shows that some of the objections that are brought up are not necessarily very thoughtful and people are objecting to things that they don't realize have ramifications and expose exegetical and logical problems with what they're trying to argue. And that's why it's really important when we are talking about these things that everyone listens and interacts with what other people are saying because it's very easy. And you and I, Bill, are no exception. And scholars are no exception. It's very easy for people to get caught up rambling down rabbit trails and not getting good critical feedback where others who have different perspectives and different understandings and different expertises can help them to correct their course from time to time so that they don't get far too far off into something that's, like I said earlier, basically just an elaborate house of cards. You know, it's beautiful to look at, but... All you have to do is bump the table, and then this whole connection to wisdom literature uh, from external sources to try to frame the context of the prologue just falls down. Mm -hmm. Or this idea that Jesus has to be called the Word directly by someone during his public ministry misses the forest for the trees. He doesn't have to be called the Word during his public ministry or the Lamb of God in order for those names to be applicable to him. So I think it's important that people at least realize that we have to look at the preponderance of the evidence. If we have Logos used throughout the fourth gospel, the immediate context, the the usage by the writer himself, and almost all the time it's about something that came out of the mouth of one particular person, it really isn't a big leap to suggest that when this verbal utterance is referred to in the prologue, it's probably referring to the same verbal utterance that was heard from the same particular person. So it shouldn't be that difficult based on the preponderance of the evidence to make that connection, regardless of whether Jesus is actually called by the name of the Word of God at any other time. We don't even need to appeal to the use in Revelation. Because we, because we have this association of a particular message with a particular person throughout the, four, the entire fourth gospel. Mm-hmm. Let me say a couple other things as long as we're still hovering over the word logos. I just want to remind again because if the prologue of John is not describing the Genesis creation, then Trinitarianism and deity of Christ needs to be rethought. But this word in the singular form, Logos, is never used at all, ever, never in the book of Genesis, in the Greek translation of the book of Genesis. Never in the singular, from what I can track down. If somebody finds one, let me know, but I didn't find any. I saw three times it's used in the book of Genesis in the plural, 
Lamech, one of the, tells his wives after killing a man, listen to my words, O wives. So this word is not in the book of Genesis. I can't like overemphasize that. The Hebrew equivalent might be devar, the Hebrew word. This word does not occur in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, whatever. The first time it occurs in the book of Genesis, it's in the plural. In Genesis 11, 1, where all of the world was one language and a few words, had few words. The first time it's used in the book of Genesis in the singular is Genesis 15, where the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Again, the word logos and its Hebrew equivalent, Gavar, they're not used in the book of Genesis creation account. And that has to be very, very significant. Interpreters in the Hebraic mindset, and I know you don't like that idea so much, Rivers, but I, I, I still think that there's a biblical mindset. It's semantics are very important. And if you want to say, well, logos is involved in creation, it should be there in Genesis chapter 1. I think, and I, maybe for listeners that haven't thought about this before, it's very interesting to see what happened and how deity of Christ theology developed is that Gentiles in the second century saw this word logos and they were of a Greek philosophical bent. Some of them even were considered to be Greek philosophers. And the word has a long history in Greek philosophy. Basically that the logos is some kind of a, in, in certain philosophical constructs, it's a secondary being or essence or something that the one ultimate origin God, if we want to call it that, made so that it could be involved in creation. Well, these Gentile philosophers saw this word, and they jumped on that word, and they said, see, the Bible, the Gospel of John, is describing for us this pre-existent, albeit a secondary God that was involved in the, in the creation. And they took that word, and they syncretistically, adopted John's first chapter into the Greek way of thinking. And that developed then into a co-eternally, eventually, second person of the Godhead. So that's what's happened here. And it's gone off into really all kinds of different speculations. It's yeah. not what the author originally intended. And I want to add to that, too, in terms of Logos. I just want to bring up some things about exegetical methodology. People have to understand that a dictionary or a lexicon doesn't define what Logos means in a passage like the prologue or in, in uh, Psalm 33.6. Okay? A dictionary or a lexicon usually incorporates the usage of the term everywhere in the particular language. When you have a, a Greek lexicon, it usually incorporates usage of terms in all different kinds of literature. So when you when you see a list of definitions for logos that maybe has 15 or 16 variations in a lexicon, the purpose of the lexicon is not so that you go to John 1.1 and look at that list of 15 def different definitions of logos and then decide which one, two, three, or four, or I've seen translations with five in different words used in John 1.1 to decide what definitions that you want to use for your theological preference. That's why when you see 15 definitions of a word, like logos, all that matters is the one 
definition that best fits the usage in a particular passage by the writer who's using the term. And when we, when we look at the fourth gospel and we have a consistent use of logos that doesn't refer to anything in Genesis, as you pointed out, doesn't cite anything from uh, Jewish, other Jewish literature, doesn't depend on targums or any Aramaic usage of anything, when you can't corroborate any of that. So when you're doing exegesis, you look at the way the writer himself uses logos to get your definition spoken word, things that Jesus said during his public ministry. That should take the greater weight. You don't dismiss that evidence and then go looking in other places for another definition of the word that you think better suits the way that you want to read John 1.1. That's where exegetical and logical fallacies happen. And people don't think about the approach that they're taking. And they tend to transfer authority into other sources that they can't coordinate with what is actually written by the author himself. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, Rivers, you're, you, you treat the fourth gospel like it's written in a vacuum. Well, when you don't know who the author is, you don't know what the date is, you don't know who the audience is, you don't have them citing any of the other uh, sources that you're claiming have impregnated his understanding of a term, for all intents and purposes, my suggestion that we look at the, the evidence in a vacuum is the, the better option because there's nothing outside of the vacuum that you can directly uh, corroborate with what's actually inside the book itself. And let me just go in general. We talked about this earlier, Bill, but here's what I see happening, unfortunately, and I'm, and I'm directing this toward biblical Unitarians. What I see happening is, is that there's this tendency to presume that the word in John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14 can't be referring to a person. So then the next step is, is people say, okay, we have Logos in John 1.1 1, 1 and beginning, and we can go back into the Old Testament and look at Proverbs 8 and, and Genesis 1 and find those two terms, okay? And then what they do is they say, okay, so that if we take in the beginning, back to Genesis 1-3, then we have God's spoken word. And some will even refer to it as God's creative word. And I won't get into that, but that's kind of a misnomer. The other thing is they'll go into Proverbs 8 and they'll say, okay, here we have a reference to in the beginning. And then what they do is they take the next step and they say, okay, well, in Proverbs 8, we have personification. Very few people disagree with that. I know Jehovah's Witnesses wouldn't take it as personification, but most of us do. But because we find personification in Proverbs 8 doesn't mean that we, we have it in John 1.1. 1, 1. Just because in the beginning is used in both passages, it doesn't logically follow that John 1 is dependent on personification that, that's rather obvious to most interpreters in Proverbs 8. The other thing is, is that now when we get to Proverbs 8, they, there's wisdom personified in prudence or sister. Well, we don't have wisdom and prudence in the fourth gospel. We don't have that language used there. So now you have to take another step, and, and I see people trying to make wisdom in Proverbs 8 synonymous with logos. Again, they're trying to get the context of Proverbs 8, which is fallacious, to control the definition of the terms and the genre of the prologue. And that's just a bad approach. 
And then what they do next is, is they have now, because there's no wisdom in the prologue, then they go to other external sources like Sirach, wisdom literature, maybe, and well, even Proverbs in some places. And they try to connect this idea that wisdom in this poetic personification in Proverbs 8 is synonymous with Logos. And again, they try to bring this back into the prologue and restrict the, the prologue and change its context so that they can redefine the terms. And again, it's a house of cards. And when you, when you critically evaluate the steps in that process, there's so many logical and exegetical fallacies implicit in it. It's much better and easier to simply look at the language in the immediate context of the prologue and the rest of the fourth gospel and come up with a simple explanation like we're doing, Bill, that uses the immediate evidence and allows the writer, the anonymous writer himself, regardless of whether it was in 40 AD or 90 AD, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if there was any Gnostics around. Doesn't matter if he knew anything about Philo. We can come up with a simple explanation based upon the way that he was actually using the language to express his own understanding of the message of Jesus to whoever we don't know he was writing the book for. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's important to understand a little bit of that historical development. Because historically, we can see that the word logos was taken by, I'll call them again, the, the, the Greek Hellenist philosophically thinking church fathers, and they syncretistically adapted the idea of the Greek logos into a pre-existent form who existed before creation. I see what happened, and I see that was a mistake to say, okay, well, that logos was involved in the creation of Genesis. They took some kind of a pre-existent logos of the Greek philosophical world they took John's Logos and said, oh, that's got to be the Logos that existed before the creation of the world. Well, you don't see the creation of the world described in John chapter 1. I hate to say it. We'll get to some of these words about uh, all things came to be or were made kinds of statements in, in the next couple of verses. But we don't see the creation of the heavens, of planets, of rocks, of trees, of animals, etc. What we do see in the Gospel of John is an introduction to the ministry of the human Messiah, Jesus. Another point I want to make too, Bill, in terms of how we approach exegesis, even if the prologue was poetry, you know, which some argue, I don't think it is, but even if the prologue is poetry, one of the mistakes that people often make is that poetry doesn't redefine terms. If I say roses are red, violets are blue, the roses are still ordinary roses, the violets are ordinary violets, and red is still red and blue is blue. Genre doesn't always affect meaning. For example, in the Old Testament, we have historical prose accounts about the Exodus story. And then we have the themes reiterated over and over again by the prophets in poetic language, but the story doesn't change. The genre doesn't change the meaning. So just because you think that the prologue might be poetic, it doesn't mean that the term logos is, is any different than it's used later in the book in a historical account. See, again, those are the things we have to be careful of. When you suggest that something is poetry, first of all, you need to demonstrate why it's poetry. 
or personification for that matter, because a lot of people simply just make these general statements that, well, you know, the word is personified in the prologue and that solves all of our problems for biblical Unitarians. Well, when you say something like that, you got it. You have to be able to demonstrate why the word is being personified, why that's a necessary interpretation. As we go on, we'll see from grammar that comes up as we progress through the prologue that kind of eliminates that option pretty quickly. But if someone approached me and said that the prologue is poetry or it's personification, I would be asking them to demonstrate from the text of the prologue why it's necessary to start with personification or poetry. And then I would ask them, what difference does the poetry make? Does it mean that Logos has another definition? And the other thing from an exegetical standpoint, when you propose things like that, you have to also be able to demonstrate that it's a better option. In other words, if you claim that the prologue is poetry or the prologue is personification, but you and I, Bill, can come along and give a simpler explanation that doesn't require going through the effort of proving why poetry or personification is even necessary to understand the prologue, we have a better option, okay? Because we can give a simpler explanation with a face value reading. So that's why it's always better to look for that option first, especially in a passage like the prologue where whether it's poetry or personification is open to interpretation. It's ambiguous. It's not like Proverbs 8 where it's fairly obvious. Again, I, I don't want to misrepresent our JW friends, but it's fairly obvious to most interpreters that there's personification there, at least with prudence, even if they want Lady Wisdom there to be a, a preexistent word being some kind of angel. You know, when you go through and you have their sister Prudence, you, you, you know, I don't know what they think about that. Anyway, but that's, again, the simplest explanation that can account for all of the evidence and can handle the objections reasonably is always going to be the best option. You never want to go the more difficult route of changing the context, redefining the terms, trying to argue that the genre creates a, a deeper meaning or a secondary meaning because that just puts more of a burden on someone to have to answer more objections and have to go further and further out on a limb to actually establish connections and corroboration that's really necessary to, to, to draw sound conclusions. Hmm. So you're kind of looking at the prologue right now, these first couple of verses from the semantic grammatical field, and I am too, but I also was thinking a little bit about the historical development and the historical use of this word logos, saying, as we've agreed, that we have to understand what it means from John, first of all, and then we can branch out from there to other biblical texts and not define the word from extra-biblical literature. But we also have to keep in mind that this word was a loaded word in the Greek world, and when John uses it, he may be intentionally using it as a polemic, meaning, hey, you Greek folks out there, you might say the Logos is this, this, and this, but I'm going to tell you who the real Logos is, the real communication of God to mankind. So it's a polemic. It's just because the, a writer like John uses it, it doesn't mean that he's using it in the same way as these other writers. It could be exactly the opposite, that he's setting it up in contrast as a polemic to say, now, you don't got it. I'll tell you what the Logos is. And I think what happened was this, these Gentiles in, the, in a different land 
you live in Israel, I lived in Israel for 34 years, right? And the, you, you very quickly understand the mindset that the truth is from Jerusalem. I mean, it's a biblical idea. The word of the Lord goes forth from Jerusalem. And the, the Gentiles come up with all kinds of other ideas, but they're, they're wacky. They're off base. They might touch here and there, you know, broken clock is right twice a day, this kind of thing. But this the whole idea of some pre-existent logos at creation, it's, it doesn't come from Jerusalem, right? It doesn't come from the land of, that the Lord said here, Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants this land. It comes from places like Alexandria, Egypt. It comes from uh, central Turkey, Cappadocia, or uh, western Turkey, Constantinople. Even that is a red flag. I mean, this, these ideas do not stem from the city of Jerusalem. Now, maybe somebody can find me a church father somewhere that visited Jerusalem and so forth, but it's just, it's a foreign idea. It's, it's foreign. So John can be using this word in a polemic way, saying, folks, I'll tell you who the real Logos is. I'll tell you how God has communicated us. It's through the one known as Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. Okay, Bo, can I just give you a little cautionary pushback sure, on that point? absolutely. I generally agree with what you're saying. But here, here would be the, the, my concern. We, we don't have any indication that the audience for the fourth gospel was Greek. So I would just be careful of, of suggesting that it would have been a polemic against you know, Greek philosophical concepts when we don't even have any Gentiles mentioned in the book. That, see, that's where we get into this issue again, like we talked about earlier with wisdom. The writer of the fourth gospel is very careful to deal with Jews because they were in, with Jesus and, and following him around during his public ministry. He's very careful in John 4 to identify the Samaritans as fellow Israelites. That's something that's often overlooked. But those Samaritans, I mean, that woman goes out of her way in that story to, to remind us that she's a descendant of David. And although they disagree on where to worship with the Jews, uh, they're looking for the same Messiah. The other issue is in John 7 and John 12, where we have the, the Jews are chiding Jesus and they say, what is he going to do? Go uh, far away and, and, and teach the Greeks? And, but the language used there is the Greeks of the dispersion, the Greeks. So again, these are Greeks that are, that, uh, that are circumcised. And we find in verse 12 that those Greeks are coming to the temple to worship. And lo and behold, when they, when they do come to Jerusalem, they respond to Jesus. So I think that's an important thing in the book is that the writer is, is, is really focused on Israelites, the different kind of Israelites in the world, the, the dispersed ones, the Samaritans that the Jews didn't like, and of course the local ones that he uh, came directly to minister to. So I'm just a little bit careful about getting Gnostics or, you know, other uh, factors involved because, uh, you know, I mean, let, let's just say, for example, that this book was written shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, maybe in the uh, late 30s or the early 40s. Well, we don't even know if there was any Gentile converts at all, because we see in the book of Acts that it wasn't for a time after the resurrection of Jesus that even the inspired apostles understood that any uncircumcised people could be saved or receive Holy Spirit. You know, it wasn't until they all got together in Jerusalem in Acts 15 and they heard the testimony of Paul and Silas about how the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. And of course, Peter had his experience with Cornelius. 
whether Cornelius was a fellow Israelite or not, that's up that's open to question too. And then they determined that, you know what, you know, God is including these uncircumcised people and he doesn't intend for them to be circumcised or burdened by the whole law. So I, I just wanted to just to express that in a cautionary way, because I, I think, you know, we, we don't really have a motif about Gentiles in the fourth gospel. So again, if we look at the way the writer of the fourth gospel uses the word and the way that he has Jesus speaking to local Jews and Samaritans that he crosses paths with, I think it's better to think of what would that have meant to them. They're, they're the audience that Jesus is speaking to in the context, and his message to them is what's identified as Logos. So. Yeah, I basically agree with you. I would say that the author probably knows that his book is going to reach a wider audience. It's written in Greek. It's not written in the Semitic language. You do have the translation of the word Messiah in a couple of places, like, oh, who doesn't know what Messiah is, right? The disciples that first come to him and say, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Oh, really? You know, who doesn't know that? Uh, and the same thing in the Samaritan woman account, right? She, somebody puts in that Messiah means Christ. And the John 12 thing about the, the Greeks, okay, I understand that. But in some ways, my point is still that this word, logos, and I agree with you, let's understand it in the context of how the writer of the Gospel of John would use it. And it could well be that it doesn't mean the same thing that it does for a Greek speaker in Corinth. We've got to be able to understand what this means from the author's perspective and not from the wider Greek world at large. And it could be that he is contrasting. It could be a polemic. We will stop here. In a future podcast, we plan to examine what the next phrases in John 1.1 mean. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yishmachu. The humble will hear and rejoice.